and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, federal prosecutors revealed that Iranian-American journalist Masih Alinejad, who has boldly criticized the Iranian regime, was the target of an attempted kidnapping orchestrated by an Iranian intelligence network. Since fleeing the Islamic Republic in 2009, Alinejad has received numerous threats. Most recently, Twitter allowed a social media campaign calling for her abduction. But Alinejad did not see the campaign as empty rhetoric. In recent years, Iran executed the founder of an opposition channel on Telegram after luring him to Iraq to arrest him. Another dissident in California was kidnapped as he was passing through Dubai on a trip to India. Alina Jad recently sat down with AJC Managing Director of Europe Simone Rodan Benziken to talk about her activism and the price she has paid for it. Simone is with us now to share some of the highlights. Simone, welcome. Hi, Mania. Thank you very much for having me. Why did you invite Masi Alinejad for a conversation in the first place? I have followed Masi for a very long time. I have uh, first followed her uh, My Stealthy Freedom uh, initiative, where she um, basically tried to give voice to Iranian women. Then, of course, I followed uh, the White, her White Wednesdays initiative. So basically, I've followed her for quite a while. And then we interacted on social media. We started to, uh, you know, retweet each other because I think we sort of see that we are, um, we share the same kind of values and vision. Uh, and uh, and yeah, and that's how it happened. So we've become, we, we've become virtual friends and I hope uh, one day ho- soon we will be able to meet in person um, and become actual friends. You mentioned Stealthy Freedom, which is Masi's campaign against compulsory hijab in Iran, the regime forcing women to wear hijab. But it's not just about women who don't want to wear the traditional Muslim headscarf, is it? Yes, it's a very good question, Manya. You're absolutely right. It's not just about the hijab. It is about the first part of it. It's compulsory. It's about the fact that the Iranian religious dictatorship actually just uses Islamism or Islam or their version of Islam to oppress the people of Iran, to oppress in particular women of Iran. And so the hijab just becomes a symbol of it. The reality is that it's not just the fact that women have to wear the hijab in the streets. It's also the fact that they can't do anything. They can't dance. They can't go to a stadium. They can't go to a mixed party. They can't leave the country without the authorization of their husbands. So they are basically seen regarded uh, as second class citizens. And I would even go a step further. The reality is while women are the symbol of this oppression, the reality is that human rights in general, anyone who opposes the Iranian regime is basically castigated, put in prison, lashed, or, you know, sometimes even worse, killed. Here's what Masi had to say. So they were trying to stop women from practicing their civil disobedience. But what happened? Women with hijab this time sending me video and saying that we are ready to go to prison for 10 years, but we're not going to keep silent. This time they said no to forced hijab, no to Islamic Republic. The government found out that they cannot keep these people silent. What they did 
They went after my family. They interrogated my 70-year-old mother. They actually asked her to stop sharing her love with me. My mom wears hijab. She has nothing to do with my campaign, with our campaign. But she's being like interrogated to not just calling me. And they went after my sister. They brought my sister on Iranian national TV to disown me publicly. And then they arrested my brother. They actually, my brother received eight years prison sentence just because of being my brother. So, and I had to make a decision whether because of my family, keep silence or keep going. So I, I look at to those brave women in prison, even from prison, they sent message to outside the world saying that we don't regret. We are not, you know, the victim of this government. We are the warriors and we are going to keep going. I, I said to myself, I have a bigger family. The mothers who lost their beloved one, the mothers whose children got killed in Iran protests, sending videos to me. So what should I do? Saying that because of my brother, because of my mom, I'm going to be silent. The movement is there, but it went beyond compulsory job. Now, compulsory job, as I always say, it's the main pillar of a religious dictatorship. Iran recently had elections, which you called so-called elections. Why did you describe them that way? Yes, you're absolutely right. I called it a so-called election. Masi was a little funnier or a little bit more cynic, and she called it a selection. The reason why she did so and why I call it so-called elections is because very clearly the president, Ibrahim Raisi, was pre-selected. There is no democratic process in Iran going on. Uh, the candidates who can participate at the election process are already pre-selected. And as we have seen in the past, whenever even candidates who were so-called moderates, they were not chosen by the Iranian regime. And whenever Iranians then demonstrate in the, pre- in the process after the elections, they will just be repressed, as you will probably remember, uh, when the Green Revolution happened in Iran and people tried to express their frustration with the Iranian regime. They were you know, killed and tortured in the streets of Iran. So this is why Masi and myself don't speak of this as an election process, but rather of the selection process. You mentioned the nuclear deal. Why should the Western world care about President Raisi's election? Well, if people care about human rights, if people care about the future of Iran, if people care about the negative influence of Iran in the region, and let's be very clear, Iran is the number one sponsor of terrorism in the world. And they should very clearly look at the biography, at the past of Ibrahim Raisi. Ibrahim Raisi was, in the words of Maisi, a killer, a murderer. He was responsible under the the leader of the judiciary system in Iran of thousands of people, of Iranian opponents who have been killed and tortured in prison. And he is a very, very strong hardliner. So, you know, while we are all thinking of going back into a negotiation process with Iran about their nuclear program, I think we need to be very clear eyed about who the leader of Iran currently is and who the leadership of Iran generally is. And in order to be able to confront 
and deal with it in the most realistic way possible. Let's listen to Masi about the so-called election or selection, to use her word. I'm going to ask a question. If as a woman, you are not allowed to choose what you want to wear, if you're not allowed to ride a bicycle, if you're not allowed to get a passport without getting permission from your husband, if you're not allowed to travel abroad without getting permission from your husband, if you're not allowed to be a judge, if you're not allowed to be a president, if you're not allowed to enter a stadium, if you're not allowed to sing, then your government says that, okay, but you're allowed to vote. How would you call this election? This is the situation of Iranian women. All our rights being away from us, only one right. We've been given the right of voting. So that is why for women, this has been a selection for years and years, not election. But for millions of people in Iran, this time was very obvious that they actually set Ibrahim Raisi to be the president before this election because they want him to be the supreme leader, next supreme leader of Iran. But what I'm trying to say is this. All the candidates are being handpicked by the Guardian Council in Iran, which the supreme leader is on the top. So for us, that was not a free election, but most important than this, this time, we don't even call Ibrahim Raisi uh, like the president of Iran, we call him Ayatollah Qatlaam, which means Ayatollah massacre. Why? Because he was actually involved. He was the one ordering the executions of more than 5,000 political prisoners. And when Iran protests happened in Iran, 1,500 people got killed. I myself interview every day to the family, talk to the families of those people who got killed. They are inside Iran. They risk their lives. And they talk to me and journalists saying that we don't call him uh, president because he's the killer of our children. 1,500 protesters uh, got killed, according to Reuters. You ask all of your guests if, given the opportunity, what would they say to President Biden or President Macron? Here's what Masi had to say. Imagine your own son, your own daughter, being hostage in the hands of Ibrahim Raisi and Iranian officials, what would you do? You just go and talk about nuclear deal? Or you ask him, immediately release your son and your daughter? That's a simple question that many mothers in Iran whose children were executed, tortured to death, got shot in the head, in the chest, in the streets for the crime of protesting, would ask President Macron and President Biden. They want to know that. What would be the reaction of them if their own beloved one being in prison under torture? My question is this. The regime, which never, never want to have a negotiation with its own people, the only way they negotiate with their own people is killing them, torturing them, or sending them to exile. You really want to negotiate with them without recognizing the civil society? I want President Macron. If you're really looking for stability in the region, you cannot go after one of the most unstable regime and negotiate with them without negotiating with the civil society, with 
those people who are fighting against this dictatorship. And most important, this. When ISIS was killing people, all the European countries, they took action. I want to say that ISIS is still in power in the Islamic Republic of Iran. You may say that this is too radical. Do not exaggerate. Let me give you an example. ISIS behead people. This is what the Islamic Republic has been doing for 40 years, hanging people. ISIS used to take hostage, dual national citizen hostage, the Western journalists, the Western activists. Right now that I'm talking to you, French citizens, Swedish citizens, German citizens, British citizens, US citizens are hostage in the hands of the Islamic Republic and the government of Iran using them as a bargaining chip. They are doing exactly what the ISIS has been doing. ISIS count women second-class citizens. I am a second-class citizen in my country. ISIS lashes people. The Islamic Republic lashes us if we remove our hijab. The Islamic Republic lashes me if I drink a glass of wine, if in Ramadan I just drink water. I mean, honestly, what is the difference between ISIS and the Islamic Republic? I'm going to tell you, the difference is this. ISIS has, uh, the Islamic Republic has Jabod Zarif, the smiley foreign minister. They have a selection and they can be invited to the United Nation and legitimizing one of the most oppressive regime by being welcomed from the Western leaders. Masih does seem to have a great sense of humor, which I would think you'd have to have to face the pressure she's under. You asked her about the moment she learned that she was under surveillance and facing imminent danger. Let's listen to what she said. Eight months ago, the FBI came to my house and they told me that you are under threat and this house is not safe for you. I was making joke with them saying that every day I receive death threats. I'm being used to it, what's new? Then they came later and saying that you are under surveillance in uh, the Islamic Republic Intelligence Service, taking photos of your private life and filming your movement. And they're trying to actually follow you here in the United States of America. Then I took them serious. I couldn't believe it myself because we were always being told that Iranian dissidents are not safe in Europe, but I couldn't believe it in America. So that's why the FBI actually moved me to a safe house in different safe houses. And now I am under FBI's protection. What struck you about her response? I think what is um, particularly inspiring is to see that a woman like her is willing to take all the risks to make all the sacrifices, personal sacrifices, for a greater good and for the things that she believes in. I think in today's world where we have things so easy, where we have the privilege of having all of our liberties, you know, we sometimes have a tendency to, you know, bemoan this and that and be angry about and frustrated about this and that. When you actually see a woman like her who is fighting for the very fundamental things that our liberal democracies can guarantee and have, I think it reminds us, and it's a very important reminder, what we have, what we need to cherish, 
and what we need to continue to defend because I don't want to be in the situation where I have to take so much personal risk, make so many personal sacrifices just to defend the things that I believe in. You can hear the whole interview on AJC Europe's weekly feature, Wake Up Call. We'll provide a link in our show notes. Simone, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Would you like to be a guest in our recording studio? Here's your chance. Please take some time to fill out our audience survey available now at ajc.org slash podcast survey. It will only take a minute, and even if you don't land a guest spot, you will receive a special gift from AJC. Your feedback will help shape future episodes of People of the Pod. Go to ajc.org slash podcast survey. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Sefi's on vacation this week, but joining me instead is Juan Dursi, Associate Director of AJC's Belfer Institute for Latino and Latin American Affairs. Juan, when you're with your friends and family at the Shabbat table, what will you be talking about? Thank you, Mania. At our Shabbat table, we'll be reflecting on a new anniversary of the AMIA bombing, the Jewish Center in Buenos Aires, Argentina. As an Argentine Jew myself, born and raised in Buenos Aires, the AMIA attack is personal for me. On the morning of July 18th, 1994, a car bomb destroyed the AMIA building in Buenos Aires leaving 85 dead and over 300 bounded. This bombing remains the deadliest terrorist attack ever in Argentina's history. And it happened just two years after the 1992 bombing of the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires. The AMIA attack was the worst anti-Semitic attack since the end of the Shoah. At this Shabbat table, we will come together remembering the victims and demanding justice. After 27 years, justice has not been served. Not one single person sits in prison for this horrible attack. Even though members of Hezbollah, the Shia Islamic terrorist group based in Lebanon and sponsored by Iran, has been found responsible for the AMI attack by the Argentine justice, no one of them was brought to justice. AMI, one of AJC's international partners rebuilt its building after the bombing and is back playing its critical social mission in the Argentine Jewish community. But the relatives of the victims and the survivors themselves are still trying to rebuild them life. How can you explain to Stefania, who was celebrating her 10th birthday one day before the attack, that nobody cares to bring justice for her dad, Luis, who was murdered on that day? How can you convey to Claudia and Ariela that no Argentine government, after 27 years, dared to go the extra mile to bring justice for their sister, Marta? How can you tell Rosa, whose five-year-old son, Sebastián, was murdered in the attack, that there is nobody responsible for her loss. 27 years after the attack, justice delay is justice denied. I'm very proud that AJC plays a central role in keeping the memory of the AMIA victims alive 
and still demanding justice. Thank you so much, Juan. I find it poignant that this year's anniversary falls on Tisha B'Av, the saddest day on the Jewish calendar, a day of mourning. Jewish tradition calls on us to fast and reflect on the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem, but also the pogroms, the terrorist attacks, the Holocaust, the multitude of tragic mile markers that punctuate Jewish history, the attack on Amia being one of them. Earlier this week, I spoke to a group of students about why I call myself Jewish. I did so alongside someone who is modern Orthodox, who was raised in a strict Orthodox home, who still keeps kosher, observes the Sabbath, and even canceled a haircut this week because it fell within the nine days leading up to Tisha B'Av. As I've said many times here, I'm a Jew in progress, and I have a lot of progress still to make. I was not raised Jewish. I'm hardly observant now. My family has barely begun shul shopping. Our pairing was intended to demonstrate for the students the myriad ways of being Jewish— the fluid nature of Jewish culture and faith, and the age-old debate of, are we a religion? Are we a people? What are we? I explain that no matter how much progress I have yet to make, being Jewish is an inescapable part of who I am. It's woven into my family narrative. I was raised on stories about pogroms in Eastern Europe, the great uncle who was disowned for not marrying a Jewish woman, my grandfather's painstaking search for a rabbi to marry my parents on a promise that my father would eventually convert— And he did, several years later. But these are the stories that led my parents to resent organized religion. As a result, I entered the field of religion reporting a blank slate, infinitely curious and personally prepared to land wherever I found comfort and meaning. Curiously, I found the stories I did on Jewish subjects always the most fulfilling. And when the rare opportunity came along to immerse myself in a religious tradition, I chose Jewish rituals. I took a dip in a mikvah for the high holidays. I observed the Sabbath— or at least tried to. It became so clear that I had what religion scholar Vanessa Oakes has called Jewish sensibilities, principles and values that help us understand how Judaism defines or shapes our lives. They include a desire to repair the world, to be a mensch, to keep the peace, and to remember our ancestors. We also make distinctions. In other words, we take our calendars very seriously, she says. Which might explain why seemingly out of the blue, I've been grieving the loss of family and friendships, the loss of my 20-something figure, the loss of every opportunity missed, the loss of sanity during the pandemic, as well as the loss of life. Is it a coincidence that these have been the days leading up to Tisha B'Av? I've concluded not at all. My Jewish sensibility is reminding me that even in the middle of sunny July, now is the time to wallow. Oaks also talks about Teshuvah, the belief that we can turn things around, build on our sadness, and make changes for the better. We are works in progress, she said, Jews in progress, if you will, and transformation is always possible. So, at our Shabbat table, and on Tisha B'Av, I will sit with my sadness and figure out how to build on it. I will remember lives lost both throughout Jewish history and in my own family. I will fast, not just because that's how you reclaim your 20-something figure, but because it's a gift— offered to me by Jewish tradition, my Jewish tradition. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag people of the pod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.